And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, December 2nd. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris, a few hours ahead of Major League Baseball's non-tender trade deadline. Somehow this day just gets bigger and bigger every year, and a lot of expectations are that this year will be uh, more non-tendery than ever before as teams try to shed payroll, and we had some early rumblings of something that's going to happen with Eddie Rosario going on waivers on Tuesday. We're assuming he'll clear waivers. We'll talk about him. Uh, there's some changes in Texas with Elvis Andrews. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa moving to a new position, and then we've got a few more international free agents to talk about because we had some breaking news in that area. We're also going to dig into some early NFBC ADP observations and take a mailbag question or two. You know, how's it going for you on this Wednesday? I am really tired because the little guy had bad dreams, but I'm okay. I, you know, I did have an interesting conversation this morning with an agent about today. And there's been a lot of prognostication that today would be (laughs) 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 right word, A plus on the delivery, Um, that that today would be a bloodbath, that there would be a lot of non-tenders today. And and, and so I think that Eddie Rosario was read as some as like the uh, canary in the coal mine. I'm always so (laughs) proud when I... When I pull an idiom out right, you know, that's, that's proper the usage. I, I used yeah. the thing right. I didn't, I didn't use the wrong bird. Um, that, um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that he was going to, that there was going to be more Eddie Rosario's after this. And, uh, so I was interested to talk to an agent today and, um, he didn't represent, uh, Rosario or, uh, Tommy Pham, who's the other guy that uh, everyone in San Diego is thinking about. And um, he, he said that he, he wasn't feeling the pressure. He thought that it would be a, a big, big day for non-tenders, but that none of his clients were actually feeling the pressure. They were all signing. Uh, they didn't even get a lot of heat from teams uh, to sign for a smaller number or anything. Um, that the process seems to be going forward as normal. Uh, but he did, but the, so, okay. So Tommy Pham is projected for about 2.6 wins, you know, more than two and a half wins. He's better than a league average player. Um, and he's projected for an $8 million ar- arbitration number. Um, Eddie Rosario is projected for about two wins, maybe even a little bit less. So he's just about a league average player. He's projected for $10 million. Uh, both of those numbers by any look at war per dollars per war in that I've done in the past should be fine. You know, um, there's, if you look at dollars per war from the perspective of all dollars spent and all wins available, even if you do that, 
which includes arbitration, minimum salary guys. If you do it that way, the dollar per uh, win number is around four and a half, um, four and a half to five. So a two win guy should be $10 million. Uh, in the past, we've used free agencies, free agents only to do it. And then the dollars per win total was around eight million or nine, uh, in which case Eddie Rosario would be a bargain. Uh, which is what the kind of arbitration system is supposed to put together. So the discrepancy between these two players, arbitration numbers, um, I kind of think that the Padres will keep FAM just because they're in a win-now state. I think it might cost more to replace uh, nearly three wins in uh, in free agency than it would to just keep FAM at $8 million. I know that um, he's had kind of a nightmare offseason with three surgeries and stuff. Um, so maybe that, maybe the medicals, uh, end up being the decision-making process, but, uh, I think they'll keep him. Rosario's obviously on the move. There is some effort within the game to change the arbitration process. Um, arbitrators do not really consider, uh, things, advanced stats. The most advanced stats, as I gather it, are leverage index for relievers and maybe, uh, some, uh, understanding of war, uh, for position players. It's really disappointing. I think it's something you were tweeting about on Tuesday night. You know, why have these independent people who don't really understand how players are valued handling this process that is not in the best interest of the players? Uh, it, it creates these, these weird gaps in what players should be paid and what they are paid. I think there is a pretty big difference, though, between Fam and Rosario. I think all the scouting reports, all the responses to Rosario being freely available, and assumingly by the time most people listen to this, a free agent, I don't think anyone's going to claim him off waivers because they know he will become a free agent in just a matter of hours. I think it's the fact that Tommy Fam gets on base a lot more. That's a huge difference in their overall value. And when you look at the year-over-year war from the last three seasons, you see a four-win season. You see a six-win season on the ledger for Tommy Pham. So even though he's a little bit older than Rosario, he'll turn 33 in March, I think you can make a pretty strong case for Pham as the superior offensive player, right? You get more power probably from Rosario, and you can ask questions about Tommy Pham's speed and, and how well that tool is going to hold up for him in his age 33 season. But if Tommy Pham isn't an $8 million player in the big leagues right now, that to me is more of a what are we doing here sort of situation because you're getting a lot of ceiling and you're getting a pretty good floor whenever he's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, 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 first of all, I don't love the construct of dollars per war and like the way that it values, like the way that it makes us think about players and front offices and stuff. And then secondly, I just don't, like, I don't think that I know what the dollars per war number is anymore. So it's kind of hard to analyze through that, that structure. Is it 5 million? Is it 8 million? Um, and uh, is it linear or is it not? Uh, I mean, I think Joe Sheehan makes a good point to, to, to point out that it's probably not linear. Um, when you look at, you know, giving out $330 million for the stars um, and not really giving out sort of $8 million for a one win player. Like that doesn't really happen anymore, you know? Right. Uh, So I think it isn't non-linear. I think it's not linear anymore, even though there's stuff, there's a piece as recently as like last year, I think that tried to show that it was still linear um, and uh, on fan graphs. And then, um, I think that uh, it might actually be the five million number. I think teams are like whether I get the win in free agency or from a young player, 
uh, is irrelevant to me. You know, like I want to get that win. And um, maybe I'll pay close to $8 million for four win, a four-win player for like an all-star type player for Bryce Harper. Uh, but I really kind of want to get everybody in that four to five million dollar per win um, area, even even with those numbers though, Rosario and Fam should be okay. At, at the same time, there there might be more borderline than other players, so we could just see a kind of normalish day today. And it, it, for all the prognostication about how bad the the free agency market would be, you know, starting pitchers at least by average annual value are getting decent deals. I mean. Mike Minor two for eighteen. Uh, there's a lot of guys who took the the. There's two guys who took the uh, Stroman and and you know they took eighteen million dollar deals. Uh, one year eighteen million dollar deals. Smiley getting one for eleven. I mean, it's not like a total cratering. There's not a lot of years in that. But how many years are our teams going to give people right before a CBA? Right. There's that too. I think that's going to lead some players who could get a multi year deal to take one year for a higher AAV and roll the dice on see if the cap gets winter. moved or or if the minimum salary changes and all of a sudden they look like a better option you know so yeah the other part of this too with Rosario is that the twins have at least one seemingly ready replacement in Alex Kirilov so if you're the twins it's not necessarily that you don't see Eddie Rosario as a 10 million dollar player it's that you see within the constraints of your budget which is imposed by your ownership mm-hmm. you see better ways to spend that 10 million dollars because alex kirilov should be able to come close to what eddie rosario is supposed to do minimum. right so you could stack up that 10 million dollars with money that was freed up maybe from jake odorizzi becoming a free agent and you can make a run at bauer and that right. makes your team a lot better because you have that built-in replacement so this isn't being cheap for the sake of being cheap unless they don't go out and make a move that makes an impact somewhere else on the roster uh, and I think with Kirilov, I mean, I think this does bump up our interest in him in early drafts because I, I think you could see a path for him, even if Rosario is still there. But I think you could also see it being a slightly longer path than we might like it to be. But the fact that they called him up and started him in a postseason game for his debut probably says enough about how confident they are in his ability to be ready to go. So even if they hold him down for a few days to preserve the extra year of control, I think we're going to get most of 2021 from Alex Kirilov as a fixture in this Twins lineup. Yeah, yeah. And I I think the combination of power and contact is intriguing. Um, You know, in a a league now where it's tough to get uh, batting average, I think he'll have a good batting average. I think he'll steal some bases. Um, And now it looks like he'll have a lot of playing time. Right. I think they're going to throw him out there in left field. Maybe long-term first base is where he ends up. But if he's just competent in left field, he doesn't have to be that good to be as passable or mediocre as Eddie Rosario is defensively. I don't really mean to be mean to Eddie Rosario, but the bar is not high defensively for the player that Alex Kirilov is going to replace. Uh, so good opportunity for him and something that looked like it was going to happen anyway. Um, so other news that rolled in on Tuesday, Trevor May signed with the Mets, which was only disappointing to me, you know, because I thought he was the kind of guy that could sign somewhere and be a regular closer for the first time in his career. And with the Mets, he joins a crowded bullpen with the always problematic Edwin Diaz, where it could still work out in a way where May ends up leading the Mets in saves and Diaz is more of the uh, four, five, six out guy that works in a more flexible sort of role. But I don't think you can go into draft season expecting Trevor May to lead this team in saves. So he goes from 
speculative closer who could sign with an opportunity to guy that sort of needs something to break his way for those saves to happen in New York. I mean, Edwin Diaz for me is a one man argument for not investing heavily in top closers. (laughs) He was a top closer and then he really, really wasn't. And then he was again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I, you know, and then a note of caution, just a fantasy note of caution this next year. Um, I've been talking to people about what this last year meant for baseball going forward in terms of minor leagues and player development, and all that. We've got a piece coming out. I think there's going to be a ton of pitching injuries next year. I think that, you know, if I saw somebody do an analysis where they said, you know, in a given year, this, um, you know, doing well on pitching or versus hitting got you this far in NFPC. I don't know how exactly to like to frame it. I wish I had the tweet in front of me, but like basically saying like um, in a in any given year, basically the top teams were uh, good at hitting or good at pitching, and this year basically the top teams in the FBC um, were better at pitching. And what that says to me is there was a ton of friggin' injuries, and the ones that were healthy and had the right pitchers, they won. Uh, because that's where the that's where the variance was. Um, I think that's going to be again, uh, true again next year. So I don't know. There's going to be so many variables. I don't think you can... I'm going to try to put those yellow flags on the injuries for, for, for pitchers, but I don't know that we're going to be able to project it that well because we don't know how each of these pitchers uh, dealt with the time, the downtime or the offseason, what they're able to do, what can Edwin Diaz do, uh, this offseason, what is Trevor May's offseason going to look like? These things are going to be all relevant and we're, and basically unknowable. I do think compared to the limitations that players were facing in the shutdown period from the time spring training stopped in March until activity started to pick up again during the summer, I think more facilities are available now by a, a decent margin. I think there was a lot more uncertainty about how to handle the pandemic and you know what you could do sort of safely and what you couldn't do and gyms and workout facilities, especially the types of training facilities where players go that are not large group facilities. Those I think are going to go back on as business as usual. I think the big question is we just don't know how much the unusual shape of 2020 ramping up, possibly tapering off, ramping back up, going max effort for a smaller volume of innings, how that impacts your long-term arm health. We don't know if you're going to have pitchers that are tired halfway through the season because they didn't have the same workload in 2020 that they typically would have had. Maybe the rest is somewhat beneficial for some guys. I honestly don't know. I mean, I think picking and choosing what factors you want to account for in terms of injury risk is really important. We've talked about the flags and you know past arm injuries seem like a bigger red flag for me now than they ordinarily would be. Like I care about that. I care if, if guys have had Tommy John or shoulder trouble or forearm trouble in the past, but I think I care more about that now because I do think those pitchers would seemingly be at heightened risk. I think those guys needed to be on a more regimented throwing schedule and if there were more disruptions for those guys than usual, they would seemingly be in a position to be more susceptible to further injury as we kind of push back into a full season this year. Yeah, another argument for not necessarily uh, putting too many ducats down on Noah Syndergaard. But then you've got someone like uh, Lugo, who just I think is impossible to project next year. 
Um, you know, is he in the bullpen? Is he starting? Um, and did the uh, sort of up again, down again uh, nature of his 2020 in terms of starting and relieving, will that have any, any long-term effects? Um, all super interesting um, and uh, and tough. But I think that, yeah, I think because of that, the, the chance that Lugo starts and because of what his role changing last year, I think that May is the handcuff or the setup guy to, uh, to Diaz. Do you get the sense that the, the pitchers who didn't get to work in big league games, the alternate site pitchers might be the group that is most susceptible or the guys that didn't even get to go to the alternate site, the minor leaguers, the yeah. high A, double A guys, that's, as they try the to ramp back about. up. Yeah, they're coming from a, a place of doing very little, comparatively speaking, that they seem to be the group that would be uh, most vulnerable. Yeah, that's what my story is about. And, and in particular, I think um, Latin American prospects are just uh, hurting right now. Just hurting right now. Uh, they, um, you know, a lot of the processes put in place to help keep people healthy and training well during this time, um, uh, are based on, you know, technology and, uh, at least, and even just like technology on the level of Wi-Fi and cell phone coverage. Um, and one of the people in my, in our story, uh, talked about one of his, uh, pitchers having to walk 20 minutes, uh, just to get cell coverage in order to, uh, even make a phone call and talk to a coach. Um, and uh, that's not even covering Wi-Fi where you may want to have Wi-Fi to log in to be able to um, input maybe some TrackMan numbers or, or, or something. Um, and the academies in places like the Dominican are only allowed to be open like eight months a year. So they're going to have to shut down soon. And they would be a lifeline in this time in terms of food, place to train, place to throw, other people to throw to, um, Wi-Fi, you know, that sort of stuff. So that's falling out for a lot of people right now. And I think that if there's any population that's going to struggle the most out of this, it's the population that lives in countries where the technological infrastructure is not necessarily there. And uh, maybe this population of prospects that doesn't necessarily have the money to uh, buy uh, to pay like a, a a bullpen catcher and uh, to have a home gym and 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 stuff like that. So, uh, it's already happening. Um, you know, people showing up uh massively overweight and underweight. Um, and um uh, losing two three ticks on the fastball. It's 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 happening right now. Yeah, it's gonna be really tough to kind of figure all this stuff out when the spring starts up again because as we start getting velo readings around whenever spring training happens you know there's usually a little bit of a build-up period but you can tell within a handful of spring innings if something's way off from where it ordinarily would be and i think we're going to see a lot of pitchers who just don't seem right and i think it's not as though you know, we worry about pitcher injuries more than hitter injuries for just overuse reasons and all the things we've always talked about but you wonder with hitters, Victor Robles kind of stands out in my mind as the guy that showed up and had a pretty different body. It's going to impact hitters too in different ways. I mean, it's just, it's going to be a mystery twist in a lot of player profiles. Like aside from missing data, we're going to have tracks that just don't make sense because we had no idea how difficult or how limited training and preparation actually was 
for a lot of these players. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, some other news to get to. The Rangers are getting away from Elvis Andrews as their regular shortstop. So Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, you know, who won the gold glove at third base, is lined up to be the Rangers shortstop on opening day in 2021. Kind of interesting that they're making this announcement now, but I was reading Levi Weaver's piece about it, and clearly the Rangers have some eyes on the free agents of next offseason Francisco Lindor, Corey Seager, Carlos Correa among them. So they're trying to figure out long term at the position what they want to do. And, you know, Andrews has reached that point in his career where he's probably more of a utility guy, or at least he's going to move off shortstop. And who knows? Maybe he ends up playing a, a competent third base and adds a little power in the back half of his career. I wouldn't expect a ton in that regard. But uh, how surprised were you to see this announcement this early? Because Andrews was kind of unlocking a new level offensively when he hurt his elbow a couple seasons ago. It's a little bit baffling to me. Um, I suppose it's an admission that they're never going to, that Elvis Andrews at this point, the rest of his contract is a sunk cost, that they're not going to be able to move him. And uh, if they're not able to move him, then they have to figure out how to uh, get some value out of him. By outs above average, Andrews was a minus three, uh, and Falefa was a plus five. I I don't know that I totally understand how transferable this is from position to position, but I think at that point when you even if you have like a plus five third baseman and you have minus three shortstop, you probably prefer the third baseman at shortstop. So I think it's probably the right move defensively. It's probably the right move uh, for the quality of the team going forward. Maybe it could goose something out of Elvis Andrews that hasn't been there. He hasn't been a league average player for three years. He was below replacement last year. Um, and if they don't, if he has no trade value, then it doesn't matter, right? Then it's just like let's let's make the most use out of Andrews. He's sunk cost at this point. The best thing he can do for us is play all over the place. So I guess that's um, that's the thing. It does make it difficult to fill out a depth chart. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so right now at Fangraphs, uh, Andrews is at top of the third base uh, depth chart uh, with Odor second. And second base is Solak with Odor second. Uh, it's one of those things where these are like probabilistic. This is this is a probabilistic depth chart. It's not how it'll shake out. It's not how the PAs will shake out. It's like we think... This is the most likely scenarios because Solak has a rubber arm, right? He's got mm -hmm. he's got a noodle. 
So you, you don't want him at third uh, where the thing is open. Odor, I think, has a decent enough arm that he could play at third. Um, so actually, I think Solok playing every day at second and Odor at third is my most likely outcome. Yeah, that makes sense to me based on who they have right now. And if they get some glue guys in there for a year, then maybe we do see Andrews take on more of a true utility sort of role. Solak, though, is still the most interesting player of the bunch. I just want him to have enough playing time to be a regular, even if it's split between second base and DH, right? I mean, I think there's still some playing time up for grabs there. It seems like they're willing to eat the money with Andrews and Rugnet Odor. I think that's the other kind of common thread here is the Rangers are at the point where they realize they're just not going to turn either one of those guys into something that's going to help them much in the long run. And I think with Solak, I think people are overlooking the speed. He was 7 for 8 as a base dealer in 2020. I know the power really fell off compared to what we saw at the end of 2019 when he got called up. He slugged 491 down the stretch in 2019, only slugged 344 in the shortened season. But I don't think he's an empty power bat. I don't think that's who Solak is at all. There were some good signs, actually. Like His max EV went up. Uh, almost a 112, which is not uh, amazing, but it's it is above average. It is comfortably above average, and his hard hit rate went up to 40% from 32%. So he's hitting the ball hard. Uh, it's just his barrel weight went down. So I guess when he's hitting the ball hard, it's it's at a low angle, and he hits the ball softly in the air. But this to me screams of just needing another adjustment, small sample, still hitting the ball hard, has a history of good ISOs in the minor leagues, did well in his debut in 2019, is projected uh, for sort of just below league average power and 10 stolen bases, but a decent batting average. So you're talking about a guy who could hit 275 and go 2010. And that's pretty close. That's hewing pretty close to projections. I think there's uh, upside beyond it. And I think now we see... Uh, a starting job for him. I think second base. Yeah, I think this is about a, a month ago now. I, I was tweeting about him. He's 9 for 10 now in his career in stolen base opportunities over 91 games, so that's good. 91st percentile in sprint speed, which just backs it up. He does run well. Uh, 21 for 27 in 126 games on the base pass at double A with the Montgomery Biscuits in 2018. I just wanted to say Biscuits. I think he's maybe Garrett Hampson like from a core roto standpoint but with room for a lot more power in those underlying numbers the key difference is garrett hampson's stat cast numbers in terms of power are not good Solak's are encouraging so yeah. i think this lines up very well for him he's the big winner at least in the short term with all this shuffling i have an interesting uh dilemma where i have a 14 dollar nick Solak in auto new um and an eight dollar dalton varsho um, mm. and I have a competitive team. Um, I think there's a lot of people that would say, nope, those are too expensive. You can get them back cheaper or you can get that value back cheaper. I'm not so sure. A lot of times I cut a player like this and then they go to, they go to, uh, the, the draft. And what I find in the draft in auto new is that, uh, there are people who cut and have a lot of money. And so there's a super amount of inflation at the draft. Um, and, do I think Solak can be a $14 player next year, like a starting uh, level second baseman? Yeah. Do I think Dalton Varsho can be a top 10 catcher next year? Yeah. I got to keep him, man. I got to keep him. 
Um, and with them, you know, there's also team concerns. Like with them, I have a, a starter and a backup um, or two backups at every position. So basically, I'm going in the draft just trying to find dollar guys. So I, I, I'm going to do it. I'm not as excited about Dalton Varsho as the person who took him 31st in an NFPC draft recently. That can't be right. No, we have the draft results. Thanks to my buddies, uh, Justin Mason, Paul Spore, and Jason Collette uh, over at the Sleeper in the Bust. They found the actual draft. The guy went Christian Yelich, <laughs> 7, Yu Darvish, 18, <laughs> Dalton Varsho, 31st, Luis Robert, 42nd, Tyler Glasnow, 55th, Clyde Torres, 66th. You know what's funny about this to me is it's not a terrible draft across the board. It's just Varsho in the third round, uh, Dylan Carlson in like the ninth round, followed by Jared Kalanich. This is just a guy who chases youth. I'm wondering if that was Gary Varsho, his father, actually <laughs> building a team. You're like, you know what? I believe in my boy. Um, yeah, it, it is weird that the rest of the team's not all messed up, but you don't have to do that. Now, the interesting thing about Dalton Varsho, uh, I was running the steamer projections through the Fangraphs auction calculator just to get a sense for early dollar values. There's still a lot more to be hashed out, of course. There are only six catchers with higher projected dollar values than Dalton Varsho based on the steamer projections. Yeah. How many of those catchers think you can name off the top of your head? Because trivia is your strength. You're really good at trivia. That can't be that hard. I think you can get at least three. I mean, Real Muto. Yep. I mean, I think Sanchez is still in there just because of the power. He's uh, the first guy under Varsho, so I'll give you the oh, free strike on that one. Shoot, I'm already I'm already off. Um, Contreras? Yep, he's ahead of him. Let me see here. Why am I? The catchers suck. Oh, Grandal, of course. Um, Grandal, yep. I'm a big Sean Murphy fan, so I'm going to say him. He's not far. He's right below Sanchez, so he's within 50 cents. Shoot. Actually, get oh, Salvador Perez. Sal Perez is number one right wow. now. But projections love Sal Perez because he's yeah. done it for a long time and it's big power and you get the you know the catcher juice and playing time volume. All that checks out. Um, I don't think that I know. I I, I guess um, shoot, how many have I done? Three? You got four. Four. So there's two. And more. you got the next two behind him, so right. you're doing well. Oh, uh, I don't know. Travis Darno? Yep. Oof. Nice. Good pull. Travis All Darno. Right. There's a there's a gap between Perez and Real Mudo and then Grandal, and then there's another drop before you get to Darno, right. Contreras, and then the one more. The last one's the hardest one. Uh, I'm just going to say Will Smith because I like him. Yeah, I don't know why his projection's so low. He probably should be up there and he's is treated like he's like up there. He's like a 230 batting average, right? Yeah. Christian Vasquez, who sort of followed up the 2019 breakout with a pretty good shortened season. Uh, there's just a lot of Christian Vasquez skeptics out there, but 283, 344, 457. The first two numbers of that slash line in the shortened season were actually better than what he did in 2019. Uh, walked more than he's ever walked uh, in a season since 2014. Man. Steal some bases. And and the projections uh, in, include regression in terms of power uh, and batting average. So uh, it's not like the projection is like in love with him. Projection says projecting him for 250 with 14 homers and seven stolen bases. In fact, we just had a conversation about how terrible the catcher position is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. That is, that is what I'll probably title that section. The catcher <laughs> yeah. is about this bad. 
Yeah. So there you go. Dalton Varsho, I think, capable in your situation and uh, has a nice projection, even from a system that generally is pretty conservative with players who come up and don't play very well in their big league debuts. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Reddick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, last time we spoke, we were talking about some international free agents, and there were a couple names that came up. I believe someone tweeted at us uh, wondering about Matt Moore and Casey Kelly. Matt Moore was interesting to me before he went to pitch in Japan. I think a lot of the guys we talked about in the last episode were coming over potentially from the KBO. Uh, but as you kind of dig into Matt Moore's season abroad, how do you feel about him potentially coming back to the big leagues? I mean, War had an excellent season in Japan. Um, you know, he he had a, a ten strikeouts per nine. That would have that was his best since you know basically the very beginning of his career in Tampa, um, and uh, you know an adjusted ERA around three. Um, and but once you plug it into the Clay Davenport translations. Um, and account for the quality of opposition, that strikeout rate falls to 7.7, and the ERA uh, balloons to about 4.9. So I think it was a good season, but I'm not sure it was uh, good enough to make a big difference in terms of the offers he'll get. Um, He may uh, find that he wants to stay there. Um, And he may look at uh, the way America is dealing with stuff. (laughs) Uh, He got $3.5 million uh, to pitch there last year. Um, So you, you like to come back over, you're going to say that he's going to do better than Mike, than uh, he's going to do at least as well as minor. Right. At least on a one year deal. Right. I mean, if minor was two for 18, I think think Moore would want one for nine One for eight, one for nine. So I don't know. Um, I would say that um, it's possible he comes over. I just don't know how excited to be about it. I, I'd say that uh, there. I covered some guys today that I was more excited about. Uh, I think Dan Straley, for example, going coming back over uh, with the 13th highest spin rate on his fastball, 
um, you know, pr- you know, excellent ride, five pitches, uh, basically a Cy Young level season in Korea. Uh, I would, I think I would be more interested in Dan Straley than Matt Moore. With the only caveat being that Matt Moore throws lefty, so maybe you bring him as a lefty reliever. That would be pretty interesting. Kind of get that Pomeran sort of effect where you get a really maybe. nice secondary to pair with a, a more lively fastball. I, mean, I remember back in the day, Matt Moore's curveball was just nasty. Mm-hmm. Get that back to its previous level. Add a couple ticks in the pen. You might have something there. I liked him coming off the injury short in 2019. I thought he was kind of an interesting budget free agent target going into 2020 and I was disappointed when he went to Japan just from the sense of I wanted to see if I was right and see if he had anything left in the tank stateside so maybe we'll still get a chance to see that Uh, but Kohei Arihara was the other guy starting pitcher that you you wrote about and he wasn't on my radar at all so I'm curious Arihara versus Matt Moore who do you think is a a better fit for a big league club at this point Mm. Hmm. I think that the one nice thing about Ihara is 27 years old um, and he's got like a six pitch uh, mix where you could, might be able to dream on one of them um, and think of a way to put that mix together in a way that's better for him. Um, one of his nicknames was the Japanese Eovaldi, which um, he doesn't throw as hard, but he has a straight fastball. And so, his big breakout came when he cut his fastball usage in half and replaced him with cutters. Um, I think in America, they might, you know, sign him to try to get him on a, on a short deal, like a three uh, on a deal with some years to it, but uh, not much money. So like a three for 10 or something or three for nine um, where maybe he's a reliever. Maybe it doesn't work out at all. And you just, you know, you sink that cost or maybe he turns into a back-end starter and you've got a cheap back-end starter for three years because he almost completely ditches his fastball and uses the cutter as an establishing piece uh, and does like cutter change, which would be a pretty unique arsenal uh, in today's game uh, to, to kind of do cutter change like that. But um, he could maybe pull it off. He throws like a split finger and a change-up. So uh, some weird Eovaldi Gaussman um, at 93 miles an hour. <laughs> kind of like it, actually. It sounds pretty interesting. I would be interested in someone that has a ton of pitches. I think about like how Kenta Maeda, you know, evolved. Kenta Maeda came over with a ton of pitches, and I think that he's been fairly different than he was in Japan. And so, um, you know, he basically just found the pitches that work with this ball, these seams um, in this league, the, the pitches he could command, the way, the way he could pitch. Um, and Arihara's numbers in Japan pale compared to Maeda, so I don't think he has that type of upside, but you could take a shot on him. Sugano uh, is, the, is the real guy coming over, Tomoyuki Sugano. Uh, he's won Cy Young's over there. His numbers basically fall right in between Kenta Maeda's and uh, Masahiro Tanaka's in terms of their Japanese numbers. Um, and so I think that um, Sugano belongs in that we're excited about this player. We're giving him a fair amount of money um, and we're trying to sign him for five years. So Sugano to the Padres, Yankees, Red Sox. That's the kind of uh, maybe the Blue Jays because uh, they do need uh, a chance at some high end pitching. So that's that's the kind of uh, situation I'm expecting for Sugano. I, Arihara, I think more. Um, a team like the Marlins or the Pirates or Orioles where they're like, hey, we're just going to bring you in here and give you a shot and 
you know, hopefully it works out. Pretty much every player coming over from Japan, I just say Seattle because yeah. I mean, there is <laughs> Seattle a, a could, kind of a direct, could give it a shot. direct pipeline and an opportunity. So I, I could see that actually being just a good fit based on need uh, as well. Uh, the other name that was thrown our way was Casey Kelly, and the results the last two seasons in the KBO have been good. The ERA and WHIP look really good, but the strikeout rate has been crazy low. We we're looking at the ground ball rate. It's not like he's you know, pulling a Dallas Keuchel and getting so many outs on the ground that you trust him to come over and just uh, get guys to pound the ball into the ground repeatedly. So is there anything we're overlooking with Casey Kelly, or does he look like a guy that might be better off staying in the KBO? You know, I actually have a, a little twist to that at the end, but I would say not really a good, great candidate for coming back to stateside. His strikeout rate is starts with a six. Uh, Straley's strikeouts rate started with a nine and was cut down to a six in Davenport's translations, about 6.6. So if you're talking about two-thirds of that strikeout rate, uh, you're talking about a strikeout rate in the fours and fives uh, for Kelly. That's just not going to fly unless he... Like let's you said, like he's going to burn worms at a 60% rate. Um, and his, you know, last year he had a 50% ground ball rate. It's not quite. Uh, but I do think that there's a chance that Kelly goes to Japan. Um, and um, there's a little bit more money in Japan. It's a little bit better league. Um, and they might be able to have scouted him and think that uh, he could do well in their league. So uh, that's the kind of move I could see for him more than coming back to the States. One more international free agent that we should talk about because there was some news that came up on Wednesday morning. Oscar Colas, who defected from Cuba a little over a year ago, had played professionally in Japan, didn't play in 2020. He has now been declared a free agent. There was a lot of confusion about the contract he'd signed to play in Japan. Uh, that has been addressed in some form. I think this is a really difficult player to figure out he's very young he's a potential two-way guy an outfielder and a guy that can touch like 94 on the mound clearly there's gonna be teams that are interested because of the raw talent I don't even know how he fits in a big league org from the jump clearly talented but what can we expect from him it's like difficult like we were having a difficult time reading his baseball reference page <laughs> <laughs> like we couldn't figure out what and where he played. Um, it looks like he played the bulk of his time in the Japanese minor leagues where uh, he showed a fair amount of patience, a great deal of power, some speed, um, 18 or 21 plate appearances in the pros. Not much of a sample to say much, but he did hit a homer. Um, the last time he pitched, uh, was in 28 to 2019 at 19 years old in Cuba um, where he struck out eight per nine, but I don't know how relevant that is. That's also in 3.1 innings. But, you know, I, I think of uh, there there are players that come over from Cuba that like they're just precious little information on. Um, there's a there's a thing that happens in Cuba where they don't always play their best players because they're worried that they're going to, you know, defect. They're going to go somewhere. Um, and then the numbers themselves in Cuba are often hard to read because, you know, depending on where they play, like sometimes they'll play in uh, like I, I, when I was writing about Cuban stats, I found out that sometimes they'll play at like hospitals and 
So it's like some of the some of the parks are are fairly nice on the level of like sort of minor league parks, and then some of the parks are what you would find in your rec league where it's like two thirty to right field. <laughs> so um, uh, parsing through Cuban stats is pretty difficult, uh, but I would say that any player uh, that can strike out eight per nine uh, and hit uh, have a five sixteen slugging in the Japanese minor leagues. Uh, it's certainly someone that should be on your radar. He's owned in my Devil's Rejects leagues, where you can own anybody at any time. If you're in a first-year player draft uh, this year, and he's not owned yet, and he's available to you, um, I, I mean, how far should we push him? Like, are we talking about like top ten? I mean, it's it's super exciting. It's a really exciting profile. Yeah. I think. When I look at the players who are available for the first time, it's you know mostly the guys that were drafted back in June, any international free agents that have signed. I mean, that's the Torkelson, Austin Martin. Yeah, I want uh, those Zach guys Dean, first. Nick Gonzalez group. Yeah, like those guys are all ahead of him. But maybe once you get down to... I mean, if you're looking at the back of the top 10 from that draft class, like our friend James Anderson has Pete Crow Armstrong as the 10th prospect from that yeah, class in his fantasy-based rankings. So if you look at him... And what does he have him overall? 10th from the draft class and... What would that put him? He would be 91st, so back of the top 100, which given the unknowns and the timetable for at least being a couple years away, that, that all kind of checks out. Yeah. I think I think in terms of dynasty, I'd be comfortable making him like a... If we're just talking about prospects and not all players, I think I could be comfortable making him like a top 75 prospect. Uh, top eight or so, uh, first year player draft. Uh, we may see he he may sign. Right, he may sign soon if he's a free agent now. So yeah, so pretty interesting story. Just a very unusual and long path to end up in a big league organization for Oscar Colas. Let's get to some early NFBC observations. We're getting draft champions leagues. Those are 50-round draft and hold leagues uh, in the books. So we're starting to get a feel for what people want to do as they put those teams together. And obviously, your strategy is a little bit different for a league where you don't make moves in season. As I look at the very top of the board, the biggest surprise to me is Jacob deGrom not being the first pitcher. Like That's the thing in the first round that actually makes the least amount of sense to me. You know, I think when you run the auction calculator with the steamer projections, it's Jacob deGrom with the highest overall dollar value above even the top hitters, Acuna and Tatis, and ahead of Bieber and Cole uh, and Scherzer and the other top-end pitchers. And, and here he is. I mean, again, it's Cole's going sixth on average. Bieber's going ninth. But... For me, DeGrom is the first pitcher off the board. Yeah, I'm cool with that. It's a little bit rough on us to prognosticate. Oh, there's that word again. Three times. You've got to ban it. Shadow banned. <laughs> um, when we don't know about the DH in the National League. I mean, even if you're talking about like 80% chance that there's the DH in the National League, there's still a 20% chance there's not in which DeGrom gets a little bit of a boost. Yeah, that's how I've been thinking about the player pool so far. And I, I think it's an easy enough adjustment, of course, if... If not, I mean, the thing we talked about when this happened was the gap between the AL and NL pitchers, you know, favoring NL pitchers because they are facing that pitcher spot. Uh, that kind of goes away, right? Whereas, you know, equal skills would previously favor an NL pitcher because of that pitcher spot that was gone. So uh, I, I look at this top of the board and I don't know. I mean, I, I, 
I'm not really that surprised by a lot of things here. It's Acuna, Betts, Tatis, Soto, Trout, Cole, Turner, Jose Ramirez, Bieber, DeGrom, Yelich, Story. And then if you're going 15 teams, Freeman, Bellinger, Bauer. Uh, we had the conversation about Bauer and, and kind of wondering, well, if he's pitching every fourth day, if he gets that opportunity somewhere, does he really have a case to be the first pitcher off the board? Because more win probability, lots of strikeouts. I understand where that comes from. I'm still not convinced the team will actually do that, even though it is in the best interest of a team. If they think he stays healthy and remains effective, it's one less spot you have to fill. It goes to Dantana with the one-year deal. It actually becomes a little bit more likely if he does the one-year deal, right? Because the team is like, well, all right, if you injure yourself, it's not on us. Yep, exactly. We're not stuck. We're not on the hook for five more years at $30 million per. So uh, I I think uh, it would be likely... Uh, to go to a team that's forward-thinking and would let him do this and would give him $30 million for one year. And uh, those teams sound like, to me, off the top of my head, I just I can't see the Yankees doing it. <laughs> just like organizationally and Cole, and I, don't, I just can't see it. But the Dodgers, the Rays, um, and the Blue Jays? The Jays certainly have the need, and they have very questionable back-end pitchers. So I could see that being A bit of an Indians connection there with Shapiro. Like, maybe he's like, okay, like, you know, we learned a lot from you last time. Like, let's let's see what it looks like to have a, a pitcher do every four days. And then every four days puts, you know, means that he doesn't have to spend on any other starting pitchers. He can probably just mix and match and do more interesting things in his bullpen and become more Rays-like in Toronto, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, if you've got a guy out there putting up that many innings. I think where he's going currently at 15 assumes Bauer is making a normal number of starts, not uh, not going on that accelerated schedule. I think if we were to get some indication that he landed in a situation where that happens, he shoots up probably into the middle part of the round. I could see him leapfrogging Bieber and where DeGrom is right now. But again, I think DeGrom should be going first among pitchers, and the steamer projection seems to agree. Uh, as far as the other early round surprises, I'm not sold on DJ LeMayhew as a guy that should go in the first two rounds. I understand that he's a really unique player. Uh, he's exceeded our expectations with the Yankees. I think the question with LeMayhew is pretty simple. If he leaves the Yankees and ends up in a more neutral sort of environment, how much are you really lowering your home run expectations for him, given that he seems to be a perfect fit with his approach? Yeah. for Yankee Stadium. Yeah, you know, there's some, when you ignore, like, so you can say, oh, D.J. LeMay did well when he left Colorado. It's not like he went from Colorado to Pittsburgh or Colorado to San Francisco, you know? Like, he went to a place that also fit his his swing path and his, his power and his opposite field type. Power. What if he goes to somewhere where the, the right field is further back or the walls are higher? So um, I would say this. I think that D.J. LeMay, who's a great pick in the second round in best ball leagues, and my reasoning is that he could end up back in New York, and he plays. he's eligible at first, second, and third. That's a lot of positional flexibility, and it's all in the infield. That means CIMI on top of that. That's pretty exciting in best ball where you just the, – the computer basically – puts together your best lineup on a weekly basis. So he could start for you at five different positions in any given week. Um, so, and, and the, just the way that he plays the spray, 
high contact, high, you know, high exit velocity to all fields kind of way that he plays could also lead to some killer weeks. I mean, just some like 500 batting average weeks. So um, he's a great best ball pick. It's really interesting, though, because using the same auction calculator settings as before, he comes out as the 50th ranked hitter based on steamer projections. And I wonder, is there too much being baked in from his pre-Yankee home run totals? I mean, clearly a different sort of player with that category the last couple of years. I don't know. Like, there's, there's so much to like. He's similar to... At a, at his worst, probably like a Michael Brantley type hitter. You know you're going to get batting average. You're going to get run production because he's putting so many balls in play. He's not going to hurt you. It, it's really hard for him to bust. And if home runs are easy to find elsewhere, in a weird way, it's a mistake that you could probably make. But that price is so high. Like the opportunity cost of LeMahieu at 24 is either missing out on an ace or missing out on someone that you believe is a really good five-category player or a possible, I mean, if, you, if you're a Mondesi person, I know you're not, but if you want Mondesi, that's a choice you have to make at that point to sort of take over the stolen base category. I think that's where I get stuck. It's not that LeMahieu himself is this extremely risky player. He's not. He's the opposite of that. He's probably going to be a good free agent signing wherever he ends up. Uh, but I, I would like him so much more if he were kind of going in that 35 to 45 range. Because at, at that point, even just... 10-ish picks later, 10 to 15 picks later, I think he compares a lot more favorably to the bats that are going around there in terms of what you're getting value-wise. Yeah, I mean, if you're picking him against Jose Abreu, uh, Nolan Arenado, um, you know, Eloy Jimenez, then um, the lack of steals is not as important, right? Now you're putting batting average and power up against those guys. And he's going to have the best batting average out of any of those guys. So uh, maybe Arenado. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't expect Arenado to stay in the 30s. If he's healthy going into spring training, he'll shoot up into the second round pretty easily. But if you're talking about players that you want to get, if you're drafting early, I want Arenado every single time in early round three because that's crazy. Like the only reason he's not a first rounder right now seems to be health. And when he was a first rounder, the only knock was, well, he doesn't steal bases. You can get stolen bases somewhere else. We've talked about how difficult it is. You're getting him but it's not third. impossible. Yeah. That's a, that's a good place. Abreu though. versus Arenado. Like Abreu is great. And I got a few people in the comments on the ranks that said I had him too low. Everything went right for Abreu last year. Everything in the shortened season. He's a great player. But Arenado's done that for a much longer period of time still has Coors to fall back on. Maybe there's some trade risk. That's pulling the value down a little bit or pulling where he's going down a little bit. But Aaron, I don't know if he gets traded, he's going to end up with a contender. He's going to have better supporting cast around him. So while he might lose Coors, he's still going to put up pretty monstrous numbers. I don't think his power is the byproduct of Coors Field. I think that's legitimate, great power that would translate very well elsewhere. I think he's still, if he's not a 40 home run guy elsewhere, he's still pretty easily a 30 home run guy elsewhere who's going to hit for a high average and he's going to pile up a lot of runs and RBIs to go along with it. Yeah, I, lo I love him there. Uh, I did want to make a, a note about uh, steamer projections and the, uh, you know, the bat projections and um, where we are right now and the, the, the past season. I, I sort of made this point before, but 
Steamer Protections is working on integrating more StatCast, and that would separate them from other projections. The bat has already done that work, so what I'm waiting for is football season to be over so that Derek Cardi can release the bat projections. <laughs> um, I think they will... Uh, and I think that this season will uh, show more separation between projection systems than any other before, um, and that it behooves every projection system to use StatCast data, um, especially because there's the chance that these things are more relevant in small samples, and we're coming off the small sample season. Um, and I think that could make a difference in some of these players, like DJ LeMay, who's, I think the a top 50 bat projection is too low, even if we're talking about uh, him being a bit of a high pick at 24 uh, overall. Uh, I think that top 50 bat is, is too low, and I think sometimes StatCast can be the difference between where you see steamer projecting a guy and where you think he should go. Yeah, if I had to guess where the bat would have LeMahieu versus steamer, there'd be a pretty big gap in those projections, but the bat would like him a lot better because there is a lot of red ink on DJ LeMahieu's stat cast page, but I'm um, still not in at 24 overall. If you re-sign with the Yankees, maybe you could talk me into it. Even that still feels a little bit too steep for me. We got one question to get to. This one comes from Daniel. It was a series of questions from Daniel. One email. Any early thoughts on Adbert Elzele and JT Brubaker? Yeah, if you're going to play in draft and holds or deep leagues, those are the kinds of names you're thinking about in the late, late rounds. Uh, Elzele, I was kind of excited when he got called up for the first time in 2019. And at this point, I feel like a lot of the prospect luster, which there wasn't a ton to begin with, has sort of worn off. We're talking about a guy who's going to be 26 in March, uh, had issues with walks again in his limited innings in 2020. So we're only looking at 33 and two-thirds innings now in the big leagues. You know, the ratios were good this year. The strikeouts were there, but a 14.9% walk rate is a huge concern. I just don't see how he'd make it as a starter without cutting that down and i'm not sure we're going to see a lot of improvement in that regard yeah the thing about also like yeah command is definitely an issue it's below average command but i would want to point out his command plus last year was 92 so it's not in that sort of josh james this 83 84 it's within a shot of of average so maybe he can have average command uh the, the bet here would be on the stuff and what i saw last year was really compelling the question was if he you know had enough pitches and um, if there was anything beyond his out pitch, um, which actually I don't even know what the out pitch was supposed to be at this point because he's made so many changes in terms of whiff rate, the changeup has the best whiff rate. Uh, but I think it probably was the curveball. That's what he had. Uh, he pitched the most in the past. What he developed this year was a slider, which is fairly close to the curveball. The slider went 83 uh, and had basically a zero drop. Um, by Brooks, Brooks baseball numbers, the curve went 80 and had a three inch drop, negative three. So like they're fairly similar, but, uh, they're registering as two separate pitches. And the best news is the change up added like two inches of drop, uh, from 2019 to 2020 and performed as, uh, performed well in terms of wasn't hit for a homer, wasn't hit for a line drive. He only hit through 31 of them, but, uh, the movement profile looks like it could work as a, uh, power power type change uh, actually as a straight type change 
Um, so it's got a 10 mile an hour gap with, with a sinker. Um, and I see potential here for a really good pitcher. 95 miles an hour, league average command. It'd be more of a stuff thing than a, than a command play. I'm not saying he's going to be a great pick. Uh, but we talked about that pick that, that, that group that makes me all excited, the Tyler Molly, who else did you remember was in that group? Molly was in that group. Um, man, Dylan Dan Cease Dan might've Dunning. been in there. Dunning. Dane Dunning was in there. Yeah. yeah. I knew there was a white Sox. So that, that, there. that's my first group of sleepers that I really like. Then there's a second group of sleepers that has like Tajay Antone in it. You know, that's where I'd put mm-hmm. Adbert Alzole. kind of like pop up, got good stuff. Doesn't have like an 85 command plus, you know, like there's some things that could go right. So that uh, to Jay Antone, Adbert Azale, those are guys I might have uh, around 100. That's where I usually pit, I put my sort of second sleeper group before you start putting in the boring veterans like Lester and Gibson and stuff like that. Yeah, his ADP, Azale's ADP is 362 since November 1st in those draft and holds. That's 144th among all pitchers. I would assume we're talking about like 30 or so relievers that. in there. I like him better than that. Yeah, he's behind Mike Miner, behind Robbie Ray. You think about Alzale compared to those guys. That seems about right. I mean, you're just you're taking taking a flyer, but it's interesting that the stuff is, the stuff is rounding is into form. Way better than Mike Miner. So like I might take him over Miner. Ray is interesting because the velo was up. Uh he's in a new organization. There's always a chance that they have some uh you know, almost like the glass now, right? Where it's like either a, you know, aim at this part, not this part, or you know, let's see if a cutter works. You know, that sort of deal. So um, I might take Ray ahead of him, but I think I would take him ahead of Miner. So, yeah, I, I had him pegged all right. About 199, somewhere in there. A reasonable range. Now, Brubaker fits the description of draft and hold guy. I don't think I would have any interest in him in a normal league where you've got you know, seven bench spots and you're going 30 rounds. His ADP is 509 opportunity. Should be there for him in Pittsburgh. They don't seem like a team that's going to do a whole lot of spending at this point. They're going through the rebuild. Maybe they'll take a few lottery tickets, but he's at least going to have a chance to compete for a spot. Uh, at a glance, you know, 494 ERA, 137 whip last year, but a strikeout per inning, 48 Ks and 47 to third innings. It was a 26-year-old rookie, so just turned 27 here in November. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the numbers, the command plus and the stuff, how does JT Brubaker look there? I mean, he's a command play. Uh, 112 command plus, uh, you know, had uh, some years in the minors um, with sub, he had a, you know, his AAA in 2019 had sub two walk rate, two per nine. Um, and the years in 2018, about the same. So, like, uh, I could see his walk rate going down. The problem is that I, I don't know about the stuff. I just don't know about the stuff. It's uh, the fastball's bad. The sinker might be all right, but it's not really a sinker league. Um, and if he's a sinker slider guy, uh, the changeup looks terrible against his sinker. I mean, that, that is just, there's nothing good to say about that changeup. Um, so then he becomes sinker slider curve guy. Um, and I think he could have some platoon split issues. Um, the put the sinker was taken for some homers. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in love. Uh, maybe, maybe super late. Uh, I would put him more in like kind of the 125 range where I put some interesting names, but not somebody that I really want to hang my hat on. It's a good way to look at him, I think. Uh, the other 
person that was mentioned, other pitcher that was mentioned in this email. What to make of no hit Keller? Has the velocity returned? I was trying to figure out like which Keller is that. <laughs> it wasn't. It was not obvious. It was Mitch Keller. What's the other Keller? Brad Keller. Oh. Well, I'm always a little slightly more intrigued by Mitch Keller, but yeah, and I think he had he had six no hit innings back on September 19th. So I think that's what it's referring to. Obviously, neither but of Brad them threw or, a complete or game Mitch. no hitter. Mitch did. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of Mitch Keller questions on our show. I, I don't know what the fascination relative to what he has been so far and what he is likely to become. Uh, he was he was like yeah, I mean he was he was supposed to be a good prospect, right? And but I just stuff looks okay. I think every fourth question we get at rates and barrels at the athletic.com is about Mitch Keller. <laughs> just rename it the Mitch Keller show. Um, you know, uh, the, the command is really bad. 86. Um, and you saw that, I mean, you saw that seven walk rate last year. And, um, the, the, the thing for me with Keller is that it's just a straight fastball. And if he could, place the slider for strikes if he had good slider command then maybe we could be talking about something about him a little bit differently um but um it doesn't seem he can so what do you do with this straight fastball you know it like kind of reminds me of like matt bad matt harvey mm. you know what i mean straight fastball if it's 93 it gets tattooed he's only he can only make it work if it's like 98 and he doesn't really have the command to make the kind of secondary first uh, thing work. He's in the back of the top 300 overall, 115th among pitchers and ADP again, relievers mixed in there as well. So over Alzale, like 75th huh? to 80th. Over Alzale, lumped right together with Tarek Skubel, Dane Dunning, Justice Sheffield. I'm taking Dunning. Uh, and and Brad Keller's there too. Taking Dunning and Sheffield over both guys. Damn it. <laughs> I'm taking. Can't get away from the Kellers. I'm go. I'm ranking those guys: Dunning, Sheffield. Um, who else did you say? Tarek Scoobal, Mitch Keller, Brad. Uh, Brad Keller, Mitch Keller. Oh, I see. Like Brad Keller more than Mitch Keller. Well, just I, like I think Mitch Keller's floor is horrid, and Brad We've Keller's. It, yeah. Brad Keller, like Brad Keller, is like one of like the Orioles. The Royals have a type. Why do they? They're kind of doing this. A uh, fastball slider with command thing, right? Yeah, like two like two pitch starters don't bother them as much. They must have some analytical finding that they that they think I don't know. It doesn't seem like a great strategy. <laughs> Ninety three command plus for Brad Keller too. I mean, it would make more sense if he had good command. Then I yeah. could wrap my head around how he does it. I don't believe. Oh crap! No, I, I'm going Mitch Keller over Brad Keller. <laughs> I just don't like. Come on, five. 5.8 K9. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, last question that came in from Daniel. We mentioned Nitro a while back on the show. Uh, where is the best place to find Nitro? Oh, yeah. That, uh, that's from a, an analyst at a team. So um, you just have to uh, play around with it. It's, it's, it's basically uh, like a very relaxed barrel rate. Um, and I just did a baseball savant search where... I think I just did over 90 miles an hour and from uh, 0 to 30 as the angles. I thought it was more narrow than that. That was like 8 to 32 or something. No, I think I was doing 0 to 30. 
okay. I'm trying to actually make it relaxed. It's uh, it's basically trying to be like a hard uh, a hard hit, but in a good in good angles. So, um, and and try to capture a, just a, a bigger portion. If you do it right, um, the leaders should uh, be over forty percent. All right. So there you have it. Baseball Savant search page, which I don't know, maybe at some point there's like a tutorial video. I think actually Alex Fast made a tutorial video. So I'll, I'll try to dig that up and uh, retweet it because I, I do think that search tool is very useful if you have some ideas of what you want to enter into it. You can get to some pretty interesting custom things. Yeah. The biggest thing that is tough is that um, if you're doing like one of the ways to look at it is like so for this one, you'll do you'll do pitch percent like percent um, as the result, because you want to know how many of their balls in play um, over their, all of their balls in play were of this nitro. Right. Um, and so that's why you'll get 40%. The problem is that then you have to, you say there's a, a link called change total pitch parameters and that changes the denominator. So if uh, you want to know this over that, uh, then you have to go into uh, pitch. Per- you have to go into that. And if you if you only want to know over batted ball events, then you have to go click all balls in play. And you have to put that in the denominator by change pitch total pitch parameters. Um, th- that's actually one of the most complicated things about Savant is is dealing with the denominator, and that's all in change total change pitch parameters. Um, change total parameters. So um, good luck with that. You can always uh, send an email with um uh, am i going to do this yeah i'm going to do this you can always send an email with a, a query that you've tried to put together uh tell me what you're looking to do what you're looking to get um i'll tell you if you got it um and if you don't um i'll tell you what you didn't click and and try to fix it and send it back to you um all cards on the table mike petriello does this sometimes for me so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm probably not an A plus, I'm not an A plus plus uh, Savant user, uh, but I'm good enough that I can probably help you uh, do what you need to do. There you have it. Hopefully that is helpful and uh, we appreciate the questions, Daniel. If you got questions you'd like to send us for a future episode, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. We'll get those questions to us on Twitter. He's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. Some good news. We got about 48 hours to go this as of midday Wednesday on our Cyber Monday Black Friday deal, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Get our best deal of the year. It's 80% off a subscription. It's $1 a month for the first year. So be sure to get that at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels if you're not already a subscriber. I mention this every once in a while. If you're enjoying this show on a platform like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave us a rating and review, we really appreciate it if you take a moment to hit the five stars if you're enjoying the show. It goes a long way toward helping new listeners find our podcast as they look for new things to listen to. So, On Twitter, he's at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.